Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. You can also follow my podcasts on YouTube. Just search Steve Wraith and click subscribe. Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. And we've got a, a bit of a different guest today. Um, I've got uh, Nick Dunn, a fellow Northeasterner from Ashington Way. Um, many of you might have heard his story on James English's podcast, uh, which he did last year. Um, he's got a book out as well, which we're going to promote and talk about later. But uh, welcome to the programme, Nick. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, great to have you on. And um, first of all, let's just talk a little bit about yeah, you know, your upbringing, you know, where you were born, you know, where you were raised and, and what you ended up doing, Nick. Uh, well, I currently live in a... Northeastern town called Ashton, which I've spent the majority of my life. Um, but my first early years of growing up, I lived in a, a smaller town called Limemouth. Um, I lived there for till a few years before uh, I was 10. Then we moved to Ashton, and then a few years there, then I, I moved to Bedlington. So I'm, I'm moving around the, a few northeastern towns. Um, Spent uh, quite a chunk of my life in Bedlam, going to school, meeting my friends who are friends today. And um, my, my parents went through a divorce and then obviously moved back to Ashton while I was still at high school. So had, having to jump on the, the good old peasant wagon uh, as a school kid, which was delightful. So it was kind of a way of playing truant. Oh, I miss me bus. Oh, unfortunately, I'll just go back to bed. You know, as you do, kids, that's, you know, what we did back then. Um, I come from a, uh, a hard-working family. My dad worked away. My mum was a carer. Um, had, I would say, a, a good upbringing. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't a golden child. We uh, get into trouble. But when you see the trouble that youngsters are getting into, these days makes what my trouble was doesn't even uh, it's not even on the same level the delinquents as you want to call them nowadays are doing more criminal stuff than just chucking a few eggs at a bus or something and running away or setting a little fire and oh you know just a bit of excitement what it was like when I was growing up so and obviously in like 20 odd years I on you know maybe a bit more. I know time has changed in people's upbringings and can and cannot do and stuff like that. And everyone's nowadays so fixated on YouTube and yeah Xboxes and Playstations. We had Mega Drives and all that back in them days. So we spent quite a lot of time outside, you know. And when them streetlights came on, there was no or mobile phones i'll see you later it was get your ass back home or you get braid basically so <laughs> a good upbringing you know happy childhood basically yeah and, and no no real trauma yeah, yeah which is great i, I mean you, you know your, your progression through school was it a positive one did you leave school with good results i wasn't a, a lover of school uh will put me hand on my heart and say I rebelled at school, getting suspended and stuff like that. It's just something I didn't enjoy, even though when I think back now in my 30s, 
you do have a, a great time. You, you're meeting friends, you're having a laugh. It's just, I prefer to not go to school and whether it's had a, a negative effect in my life, maybe, maybe not, but I had a one-track mind and that was to join the army. What made you, you know, what made the army an attractive option for you? Was it, um, was it watching war films? Was it playing, you know, playing armies in the street with your, with your mates on the, on the streets of, you know, Northumberland? What, what was it, was, what was the main attraction? Pretty much what you, you've just said there, um, watching war films, playing armies down, you know, making camps down the woods and stuff like that, watching Arnold Schwarzenegger in films where he's just got an unlimited ammunition belt <laughs> attached to his gun. And you, and then obviously the army be the best adverts. They were drawn, drawn my attention, not like the, the crap that put on the TV now. No, no one would look at the army adverts now and go, oh, that looks in, uh, interesting. It's totally garbage in my eyes. But yeah, it, they, 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 they were the kind of stuff that drew me to join the army and obviously the chosen regiment that I wanted to join. I, I wanted to be part of a, a very hard working, big reputation regiment. And that's why I chose the parachute regiment. You weren't a scholar at school, but were you, were you fit? Were you into your sport as, as a youngster? Yeah, yeah. Playing football in all weather. Finished school, quick cup of tea and a bowl of Frosties, put me, me full football gear out and meet the lads around the, the football pitch on the school grounds. And it didn't matter if it was raining, snowing, you'd be playing football. And, and they were like the best times in my life because you'd let me play and you you'll be on a team where you'll be getting hammered ten nil or something, and then next minute someone will shout next goal wins, and you'll score, and then the goal you've won the game, even though it would be just ten one. But that's how it, that's what the the rules were back then, you know. And it was great, and you you don't see that often nowadays. You don't, and it's sad. It really is. It's jump. It was jumpers for goalposts. But I mean, I think as well. I think, oh, yeah. You and I, you and I are roughly the same age, I think. And um, it was, I think we we ended up, you know, having having some of our generation who would vandalise schools and and smash windows and break into schools when we were playing football. And I think because of that, you ended up with more security around the schools. Fences got put up. So I think it became the next generation. It was more difficult for them to go and play football on the pitch because there was less grass areas. Yeah. Or people were building on grass areas, so yeah, I agree massively. I mean, you know, every night, you know, until until your man was shouting you in, you were playing football. And sometimes on a Sunday, I remember after a Sunday dinner, going out at two o'clock, and you'd still be playing football at ten, you know. And sometimes it was games at twenty aside, and I can definitely remember those days where it was next goal the winner, and I scored a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like me fitness. When I was at school, I was on the cross country team. Um, playing football, playing sport. P. I loved doing PE. Um, playing quick cricket and stuff like that. Uh, but, but yeah, I was I was really into me running when I was uh, a younger. Um, and I thought, well, it's a bit bit of a good level of fitness to then go and do the me army training. Um, obviously, it's a, a bit of a mixture of both: a bit of strength, um, mental fitness as well as physical fitness. 
But tell us about that then. Obviously, you know, you said it was the, you know, the bit of war films and plain soldiers and, and then obviously the advertising campaign which drew you in. Um, but, you know, tell us about the process of, of joining, you know, the Parachute Regiment for you. Well, obviously, going through all the, the rigmarole at the careers office, um, I, uh, I was 17 when I uh, went through that, so I had to have my legal guardian, obviously, which was my mum. So, obviously, when you, you've you done your tests up in uh, Edinburgh, or I think that's where I went, mm-hmm. um, basically, standing in the careers office, putting your hand on the Bible, looking at the, the Queen's photo and saying, basically pledging your allegiance to Queen and Country and it was a real proud moment um, and then I was about to get shipped off to Catrick on my 18th birthday but paperwork kind of got delayed and I went and joined in April so I was able to spend my 18th birthday um, out on the drink not turning up at Catrick because that would have been a, a massive wake up call going from a, a 17 year old renegade to a swift young soldier in the blink of an eye um it was quite funny when i turned up at catrick i had me my eyebrow pierced my earring and a silver chain and they looked at me and went what on earth are you i was like what <laughs> so naive and everything and i'm i'm not going to turn around and say training was easy it's not to turn, it's not meant to be easy it's there to separate you from the best and the rest and the parachute regiment training is renowned as being very hard and difficult and it was something that i wanted to do i had a few niggles um few uh setbacks but i powered on through because i wanted the end goal and i wanted to wear that maroon berry with a cap badge of the parachute regiment on top of my head and every time uh i put that berry on i felt a a sense of pride and going through train and the illustrious pay company um test week where you do uh, a few different uh, physical endurance uh, exercises two sometimes a day one in the morning one in the afternoon and it basically te- takes you to a new level of uh, robustness physical and mental uh, capabilities to get to that next level and to pass pay company on the square to get the maroon berry without the little green back and there's such a, a sense of achievement and then passing out on the parade square in front of all my family and obviously when we were marching off to our uh, Ride of the Valkyries uh, tune I was closest to the stand, so my parents could see me marching off, and it was another, uh, you know, another stepping stone into being a parachute regiment soldier and just showing another level of pride. What was the hardest part? I mean, I've, uh, you know, a while ago on my YouTube channel, I did, um, I did used to have the the P Company documentary up. I was a I was one of these people who used to record lots of crime documentaries and army documentaries, and I always kept them on videotape. I then managed to transfer them over onto DVD, and then I loaded them onto YouTube, but it's, it's copyrighted stuff, so I still have it. Uh, but it was probably one of my most viewed videos, and a lot of ex-paras mm. were over the moon that I'd put it up because you know they, some of them hadn't seen it, but it brought back a hell of a lot of memories for them. So what, what was the hardest part of, of P Company and, and, and the whole process for you? 
pay company, in a way, it's a, a very, rel- well, when I did it, it's relaxed. You're allowed to sit on your bed. You're eating a lot of carby foods because you need energy for endurance. And, and you can see a lot of people looking a bit nervous because that you know one one exercise that you do could determine whether you be a paratrooper or not and i just showed grit drive and determination and i I wanted it more than more than anyone and i went for it I, i was the smallest guy there the skinniest guy probably and i think i uh showed the other guys that you may be bigger build than me and taller than me, but I can uh, keep up with you. And if not in, in certain uh, exercise on pay company, be better than you. So yeah, pay company, yeah, you've got to work as a team, but ultimately you are there for yourself. You, you know, you've got to show, show the pay company staff that, yeah, you can work as a team, but you're not going to hold back your potential because that could, determine whether you pass or not so you kind of stuck in the middle basically doing it for yourself but also working as a team um but it's tough i'm i'm not going to say pay company was easy it wasn't easy i I didn't feel any events and i i passed it first time some people are unfortunate unable to do that whether they you know they get an injury or etc but it was like life or death for me. I think if I failed at first time, I don't think I could have ever attempted it again. I wanted to pass it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously were attracted, as we've, we've already covered, you know, by the war films and stuff like that. You had a great childhood. There was no trauma there. You didn't, you didn't grow up with any, you know, hatred of, of anything or anybody by the sounds of it. So, you know, when did, it, when did the realisation hit that, you know, you were actually training you know, yes, to be a paratrooper, but you're also being trained to kill. Um, but you always know that in the, in the back of your mind that you may face a, a situation in your uh, military career where it's kill or be killed, and you've got to make sure that you've taken the correct procedures that you're in the right and. It's crazy because the, the 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 vultures that hang around the military and we've seen it on the the media during like the uh, during Iraq and all the incidents that the media lied about what British uh, troops were doing there and, and abusing prisoners and stuff. You know, it's in the military you have a way of doing things, and to the normal civ- civilian might look a bit out of the ordinary but in our way of life it's not it's this is what we've got to do to ensure you go to sleep and have a nice happy life we've got to go through all the sacrifices yeah a lot of people can turn around and say well we shouldn't have gone to Iraq but at the end of the day you don't join the army to not go to a war zone any army personnel turns around and says well I didn't join the army to go to war what the hell did you join it for? To make tea and biscuit, to make cups of tea? I don't think so. That, that is your bread and butter, to be a soldier 
and you have to go to war. Obviously, war is nasty. It's not nice. People die. We understand that. But you, when you sign on the dotted line, you know what you're signing for. So you pass out. A proud moment for you and for your family. Um, what's the next step? What's your first deployment? I was in battalion over a month or so and then obviously it was like a ghost town because everyone was doing pre-deployment training for Northern Ireland. So we're kind of kind of a new guy. I was very apprehensive. I was, I was shitting myself basically. Uh, I was kind of just wondering what the hell was going on. It was very bustly and people were just caked in shite because they'd been on exercise for about three weeks. Um, it was very nerve-wracking, I'd say the least. Um, seeing these guys cut round in their military uniform with their berries, just coming off exercise, looking rugged, looking like soldiers, real soldiers. Something that if you were an opposition fighting force, you'd be scared of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was one of those guys. But I was also scared because I was a new bloke. Um, well, I went on a little bit of leave, so I celebrated my 19th birthday at home and then uh, went to Northern Ireland in March. And um, Halfway through Northern Ireland, I went to Bryce Norton, done my parachute training, so I got my wings halfway through. And then fin- went back to Northern Ireland, finished my tour, and uh, there we go. Been in battalion two minutes, and I've got... A tour under my belt. Um, what was it like? Just, what was that part of it like? You know, I mean, the, you know, the the actual wings section is is a big part. You know, it's the, it's another proud step being a parachute in the parachute regiment. It's what makes you different. You know, being able to, you know, jump out of a plane and and land and you know and 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 then you know go on and carry out your mission. You know, had you ever done that before? First of all, had you ever jumped out of a plane before? No, I've I've never jumped out of an aeroplane in my entire life, and we and there wasn't when we were at Bryce Norton doing parachute training. I didn't think at the time, but and there was no like uh, stick basically of certain people in certain positions. It was just free for all. Get on the plane. Well, I got I got on the plane last, didn't I? <laughs> Thinking, oh, I've got time to see what people are doing. Jump out. Well, no, I was the first out of the door, so. I'm stood at the f- first man out the door of the Hercules out and I'm seeing all the uh, ground and road go past us on uh, at Bryce Norton. And honestly, what a feeling it is. I wasn't scared. I felt like I was on top of the world and it was a, a real, real good achievement because you can go through parachute regiment uh, training at Carrick if you can't jump out of an aeroplane, that's you. You can't be a paratrooper, basically. Simple. So all that hard work, if you can't, at the end of the day, jump out of an aeroplane, it's been a waste of time. It's like pay company. Pay com- anyone can do pay company. It's, a, it's a, a fitness test week. Obviously, not everyone can pass it, but to get, to get the, the airborne wings, you've got to pass pay company. So you could go through pay company, pass it, Go to jump out of an airplane and can't jump out of an airplane. What is the so you've just 
wasted all that effort doing pay company if you can't jump out of it. So I've I met loads of paratroopers in my time who do not like jumping but have to do it because, well, at the end of the day, they're a paratrooper. They may jump out with their eyes closed, <laughs> but uh, their eyes are open when it comes to land. Yeah. Great stuff. So Northern Ireland, was that was that a nice deployment to get? I mean, obviously, back in the day, Northern Ireland would have been a horrendous place to go um, for anyone, you know, I mean, during the Troubles and, you know, a lot going on. But was it was it a lot easier when you were out there? It was definitely a lot easier to the uh, stories that I've heard and we all know um, the, of the Troubles, etc. in the 80s and 90s and and uh, being part of uh, the 1st Battalion of the Parachute Regiment, were always kind of welcomed in Northern Ireland, as you can imagine, um, with obviously the involvement with Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Um, but, you know, it was relaxed, but you still have to do your job. You still got to make sure you're not too complacent, because um, that's when things can go horribly wrong. Um, Northern Ireland, it was relaxed. Uh, it was just crap weather for nearly six months. Mm -hmm. That's Northern Ireland for you. But it was a for a new guy in Britannia, it was a, a an eye opener, um, to say the least. The good thing is about being brought up in the northeast, you would have been ready for that weather in Northern Ireland. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. What was next after Northern Ireland? Then? Um, obviously a few years just going through the transition role of being part of 16 Air Assault Brigade to then working under the Special Forces Support Group. So um, in our battalion, so to speak, it's predominantly Parachute Regiment and you've got elements of the Royal Marines and RAF Regiment. And we built up, we're built up of the Special Forces Support Group. So we go on operations with... Uh, the UK Special Forces and potentially while on operations could have certain uh, missions potentially with American uh, opposition like uh, maybe Delta Force, the US Marines or a, a regiment which is kind of what we kind of mirror the uh, American uh, infantry units and all that so it's it's good, you know, being out in Iraq and seeing different American uh, soldiers, and potentially you could be going on an operation, a joint operation with them. Who knows? But yeah, it was it was good being a part of that uh, group. You know, you're doing something completely different to what normal Green Wall soldiers would do. Um, so. Yeah, obviously I was. I never got chosen to go on operations with, say, the the Rangers or anything like that. But a few of the guys did, so that was good uh, experience for them. Yeah, I mean, did you see any conflicts, Nick, in your time? Um, in Afghanistan, I was kind of a bit back from some of the other guys, but uh, you could hear it all over the radio. Um, you can see the smoke going off in compounds. And you can hear the the sound of rifles going off, machine guns going off. You can see on the high ground the uh, the SF guns going off, and you're trying to look for the through the binoculars to find out where these uh, 
Al Qaeda, Taliban uh, enemy is, and unless you're literally in these compounds, you physically can hardly see them. They are very sneaky at what they do, and their their way of dealing with us is shooting scoot. So they'll just blat off nearly a full magazine and hope and hope for the best that one of those rounds hits a, a British or an Allied soldier, so to speak. Um, but I had my own incident in uh, Afghanistan. We, I was top gunner in a, a Land Rover, uh, Wimic, which is just a basically a Land Rover with light armor on. And uh, we were went in to investigate uh, people watching us. That could that we call them dickers, and it goes back to say Northern Ireland as well. People would watch to see what we're doing and then pass uh, information on to the enemy. So we went to investigate them and we just came back to where we were parked. And then there was a pressure plate mine and it went up for the engine block. And just, yes, we were unscathed, but it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Um, and it's not like the movies where you'll see on the movies where you'll see the mine and you've got time to get behind a rock or jump out of the way. That doesn't work, it doesn't work like that. It just literally, we drove, parked, boom, like that. It happens that quick. You haven't got time to do anything. And it, it is nervy and a bit scary as well. Yeah, and, and it doesn't automatically hit you straight after the event either, does it? I mean, I, you know, we, we look... You know, and we talk about it more and more now because men tend not to talk about their feelings and things like that. But PTSD is such a big, a big thing, you know, from ex-servicemen. It's something that was almost dismissed. And, you know, it, it's something that a lot of ex-servicemen suffer from through trauma, from those kind of experiences, whether it's seeing someone shot or being involved in a landmine incident or a vehicle, ex, you know, getting something exploding under a vehicle. Oh, yes, definitely. There's always the after effects. Um I remember that uh, after dusting myself down, making sure I was uh, not injured in any way, um, I remember hearing the guys coming up with the metal detectors, and it's like it is some, it is what you see in the uh, movies where the, everything slows down and the voices are a bit distorted and stuff like that, and they were shout, and then I got the shaky leg trying to get out of the vehicle. I was just a little bit nervous. I, you know, I've never experienced this in my entire life and I'm quite lucky to come out unscathed because of a lot of stories you've had and heard about where people have been injured, lost limbs and obviously died. It's, it is nervy and you can't not think you're invincible. They say everyone in the army's got a, got, you know, a bullet or a mine with a name on it's just when if that ever happens um but like i say we're, we're very lucky um to not get injured and um i don't have nightmares or anything like that obviously i'm probably lucky i know a lot of people have and do go through mental trauma from their time in the military and my heart goes out to them and I hope they can seek help and carry on with a day-to-day -day life without uh, their, military, their military career affecting them.
was Afghanistan the most, you know, the most testing time for you in the Paras? Yes. Um, carrying that weight and that heat, as da- da- downright disgusting. <laughs> You've got to be on a high level of uh, mental and physical robustness to do that for hours as well. And it's and 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 being in the desert, not in your com- uh, compound at your fob or military base, but living in the desert for like a few weeks at a time, that's really testing as well. Um, but you've got to do what you've got to do and you do the necessary training for these situations and if you didn't do the training then you wouldn't be able to survive in these hostile environments yeah no 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 doubt about that so um coming to something which obviously most people will probably remember you for and that is when you came to the national news attention as part of something that was called the the chennai six um you know you were with five other uh, former squaddies uh, who were arrested uh, and then jailed in in india after defending ships from pirates um tell us tell us how you you know your your life your life changed and how you came to be you know essentially out there doing that job um did me time in the army and quite a few people that i uh got on with in the army they had left and gone into say uh private security roles whether it be doing close protection say in uk or hostile environments and a mate of mine put me in in the way of do you fancy doing maritime security and working on ships and i thought well it's not something that i'd normally do like i prefer to be on land and he was like oh it's to stop somali pirates hijacking vessels and it's it's you know you go into different countries and the money's good and i thought why not so i went and done me courses got me me ticks in the boxes and went and done maritime security um obviously i was qualified to do land-based security as well so spending a, a lot of money doing these courses you want to get your money back so maritime was the quickest way of getting that and going on doing jobs um going on these big vessels whether they be uh bulk carriers uh container ships you name it meeting different uh, nationalities on the vessels different multinational crews or say a filipino crew and like the officers were could be you know just all ukraine and it, it varies from ship to ship but they were always very grateful that you were on board because they knew if we weren't on board they have a chance when sailing through the high-risk area, they could be hijacked by Somali pirates. Yeah. And, I mean, you were on a, you were on a boat. I think it was a U.S.-owned boat. I think MV Seaman, uh, Guard Ohio. And the authorities, the Indian Coast Guard, accused you of straying into their waters, didn't they? Yes. Um, so we were on our Klein vessel going from Muscat to Sri Lanka, and in a couple of days we got an email, and we were told to board our holding supply vessel that is owned by the, our company that we worked for. It, it's a way of saving money, basically. So obviously we handed our kit and equipment uh, back 
to the main security guy, the tactical deployment officer. Um, and then we kind of ceased operations and we were going off the coast of India um, so we could have liaisons with our agent to get procure fuel and provisions. Um, and in maritime law, if there's, say, a, an emergency, you can go to a neighbouring country. Um, and there was a, a cyclone, and it was making the sea state really bad, and we were, were only a little vessel, so there, there could have been potential issues there. So we, suck, we suck, took refuge in India, um, but the next few days, you just couldn't write what was going to happen. And I remember like it happened yesterday. Um, one minute I'm doing my job, next minute I'm in an Indian prison having my life taken away from us. And it's just really nerve-wracking because you've got literally no control of what's going on soever. I mean, it, it's a strange situation to be in, it, but, and I've heard some horror stories from, from so many countries and, and, you know, India and Mumbai in particular, where, you know, the, the chief police officer who arrested you turns out to be the judge as well, you, you know, and, and they rush these things through to, to, to get you locked up. And it, it seems like you were a victim of a, a similar kind of thing, uh, you know, across there. And, you know, I mean, what, was there anybody who spoke the language amongst uh, you know amongst the lads who you were with? I think there were six of you in in total. Uh, well, there was there was thirty five people on that vessel, and there was twelve Indians. Fortunately, one of the Indians was from Tamil Nadu, so he could speak the language. So he was kind of being a, an interpreter as well, because our agent was nowhere to be seen. The last time we saw our agent, he was laughing and joking with the police when we do when um they were counting the weapons and ammunition to make sure they were correct but they turned around and said the weapons were illegal and i'm thinking wait the paperwork states otherwise and funny enough they were in mumbai a month to, previously to rs so how can they be legally one minute there next minute illegally but everything that was kind of led up there was a, a reason behind it obviously at that time everything's all bustly and in, in the air and you 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 haven't got a a good thought process at that moment because all you can think about is what the hell's happening how's my family taking this and um, but once kind of things kind of die down a bit you know you've got 35 men all through all thrown into a prison um six british 14 estonian three ukrainians and 12 indians um and it, and it's crazy it's absolutely crazy because you haven't got a clue what's going on no one's giving you information there's no one like our agent trying to act like an agent and find out what's going on why we've been arrested it was just hell pandemonium it was all done for the media there was something bigger than what we knew of at the time and later, when we find out things, um, it was because we've been made an example of. Because back in January 2012, two Italian Marines off the coast of Kerala, which is on the southwest coast of India, 
accidentally murdered two Indian fishermen. Mind they were working for their country as Italian Marines doing anti-piracy, where working as private contractors. So they've got their gun country to back them up if the shit hits the fan. We have no one. And we hadn't done anything, but they couldn't arrest them, put them in prison. So we're the fallout guys. Yeah. Even though we've not murdered anyone, you've more or less treat us in the way that we've murdered someone, basically. It was a massive political setup to be made an example of and it, it robbed me and the other guys four years of their life. Tell us what it was like in the prison. What 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 was it like inside, you know, the you know the, the, the cell? Uh, I I've actually been in three different prisons. Um didn't really see much of the first prison as such. Um but if we if we spend the majority there we probably would have been carted out. It was built up um during British rule. So they were quite uh, happy when they found out British people coming for a few days stay. Um, but the main, the main two prisons up in Chennai itself, uh, Central Prison Puzal to the Raman Prison, such a, a, a vast prison, was, it held over a few thousand people and some more. So it was even going beyond its uh, capability of housing individuals. Um, we, from the entrance and the jailer's office, our compound was like nearly a mile walk. So we're having to walk past all the, the local Indians getting abuse thrown at with, stones thrown at with. We, we were treated like absolute criminals because they would have read in their newspaper that apparently we were going to be doing a, a Mumbai-style attack on the nuclear power plant, we were selling weapons to fit. The, their media portrayed us as near enough terrorists, <laughs> which is quite uh, ironic when I'm here to protect people from terrorism. Um, and now I'm getting portrayed as one. Um, we shared a compound with different cells with like Nigerian uh, drug dealers, um, Iranian drug dealers. Uh, dodgy Russian people were, were money and a few Sri Lankan Tamil Tigers um, but you, you keep people at arm's length you know you, you're not gonna you're gonna chat to people find out what the crack is and uh, see what prison life is because at first you're like new, new newbies in the prison and you need no how to get around things a lot easier so you're going to interact with other prisoners um because it doesn't it doesn't matter what you say they'll have read it in the paper so they know and it was funny when some of the nigerians were like can you get us weapons i'm like what do you mean can you get us weapons well you you're selling weapons aren't you so i went no <laughs> that's just the media chatting crap you know what i mean but it was funny man um horrible bleak Horrible, bleak conditions. Disgusting. What was the food like? Um, food in the first prison was, it was woeful. We lost quite a substantial amount of weight uh, across the guys. Um, I remember one of the Estonians, he's a, a thin-built guy anyways, and when he came out of that prison after six months, he looked, he looked anorexic. He looked 
like something that you'd seen pictures in Auschwitz. You could see his bones, everything. He was unhealthy. We were all unhealthy. I lost 10 kilograms in an extreme diet and, and it was unhealthy. We all kind of contracted D&V where it was absolutely disgusting. Um, there, was, there was rats, the, the odd snake, dodgy looking spiders. Um, the food, they would give us like potatoes, cabbage, onions, tomatoes. At, at first, chicken necks and wings, and then we kind of progressed to chicken thighs because how the hell are you supposed to eat chicken wings and uh, necks? Mine were uh, in that prison, we were cooking for 23. So we're not chefs, we're not like your Gordon Ramsay's who cater for mass people so we probably gave ourselves bloody food poison more than once um but trying to for what we were given to try and make that a meal to feed 23 people was it was quite daunting because sometimes the vegetables were rotten sometimes there wasn't enough and we'll be kicking off saying how are we supposed to feed this is only our only meal of the day how are we supposed to eat so it was a big challenge because we chose not to eat the local food because I don't want to be eating rice and dal every day. And it wasn't even dal. It was like more of a, a red, spicy, chilli, oily-looking liquid just poured on rice. It was absolutely revolting. And I would have been shitting through an eye of a needle every time I ate it. But... We were managed. We had we're, there was a prison shop, so we would uh, try and buy some porridge just to fill up a bit and biscuits. My diet was awful, especially when I'm really into me bodybuilding and all that. I went into the prison uh, in decent nick, and I come out uh, a total different guy and withdrawn looking and. But at least I was still alive and fairly healthy. You know, obviously being in the in the military, there's a discipline that you need. You know, you have a routine. Did you find that part of it easy? Did you get yourself into a, a routine in, in prison? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, my military training played such a, a big role in my survival in prison, type, uh, prison life because I'm not saying that I didn't go into a corner and cry for my family. I'm not saying that at all, but someone who isn't normally able to forward thinking on their feet into a, in a say, a, a hostile environment, like being in the, in the military where trained to think like that and look at the dangers, assess the situation. Normal people don't do that. They'll just go and crumble in the corner. So, the first thing was like, right, where am I going to sleep? Right, I'm going to sleep there. I'm going to try and make it as comfortable as I can. Um, using my train as in a T-shirt or something as a pillar, just folding it up and getting yourself into a routine. So get up in the morning and try and have some sort of breakfast. You know, majority was chapatis and bought two boiled eggs for breakfast that the prison gave were, um, which was quite delightful, you know but then uh, it's better than nothing. And then just walk around the compound. Uh, the Nigerians in the first prison had a little gym set up. Um, so just cracked on a bit with that. 
Um, but a lot of the time it was just, you were just missing your family. So there wasn't a lot to do in the first prison compared to when we had uh, been convicted. It was a total different kind of way of life prison. I mean, it was a four-year ordeal, and I mean, you know, you wouldn't know where to start. Anybody watching this wouldn't know where to start, you know, taken away from your everyday normal existence and then suddenly thrown into, you know, such a, such a world that you're describing. Um, you mentioned your family. Did you have communication with them? Uh, and obviously, the family did play such a huge part. I mean, I remember seeing your sister you know, you know, almost it almost felt at times single-handedly trying to get you and, and the rest of the guys, you know, back home. Uh, in the in the first prison, communication with my family came only via the embassy. So they would come and visit us nearly every fortnight, um, and bring letters. There was no post; we couldn't do any postal, um, like. Parcels, very limited. Um, Communication-wise, well, we're convicted in the October. My sister came out and saw us in the March, and then we got bail in the April. So, obviously, spending my first Christmas and New Year and my birthday in a pr prison and just seeing my family, uh, I, just my sister, when she came out to see us the first time, um, and obviously hearing about what happened to my mum before Christmas with having a double aneurysm kind of ripped me to bits inside. So communication was key. And I had to wait till the embassy come in. So there was times where nothing happened for about three months on the case side. So when you're locked up in a prison with no charges, and you're scratching your head thinking, is someone going to tell us what's going on here? That's, that was a real low point. For th out of the six months that we were in prison the first time, I, I think it was about three months, we heard nothing from our legal team. We, we even had the jailer come up and say, right, you've gotten bail. You're now, you're now to leave prison. And we're like, what, what? So we packed all our gear up, went down to the main gate, and the superintendent's going, what are you doing? Well, that stupid bell end said we can get in, we're getting bail. He went, no, no. And the jailer's just stood there. I'm thinking, he's just lied. So he's just basically getting 23 foreigners all worked up, saying we're getting bail, and it was just a hoax. So when we actually got bail, we went, nah, we're, we're not believing it. Well, we literally got chucked out of that prison. The superintendent had to come up to our compound and say, will you get out of my prison? The embassy's here. <laughs> get out of my prison, you've got bail. But mental, absolute, mucking with your head, you know, that's enough to send someone around the bend. You, you, you've not got your life in your hands and some, some they're just lying to you. Mm -hmm. How what, do you comprehend that? What did it feel like, you know, once, you know, once the ordeal, you know, did eventually come to an end and you were, you know, you were taken by the, the British Deputy of the High Commission to, to the four-star hotel in the city? I mean, 
did you believe it then or did you still were you still looking over your shoulder waiting for your you know your color get felt and getting dragged back in um well when we like i say when we got bail and and we went to the hotel and all that um it was great feeling because i'm thinking wait well, there's we've done nothing wrong anyways why why should we have been in prison i know mistakes can happen that, that that's just you've getting a bit of prison time out out of where just let let will be on my way so we had to sign bail twice a day for three months and then the case was quashed in july 2014 so i'm technically now a free man in indian law it states the the police have 90 days to appeal i don't have to remain in the country and we're showing these letters from our legal team to our British government. We had a meeting in the embassy. You had people come from New Delhi and we're saying, get us out of this country now. And the British government, and this is the only time I'll ever have a go at the British government on how, the ha how things was handled, because personally, they've done nothing bad to me. But as a whole, this is when they really could have made a difference and they didn't they turned around and said we will see if the police appeal or not i'm thinking so you're just going to let us fend for ourselves for another three months that's three months my family have got to go into financial burden just to keep a roof in, over my head in a hostel because we're, we weren't in this five-star hotel now the the company went well i can't maintain that you're on your own now so I'm having to live off handouts, charity money, my family's money, just to stay in a hostel for however how long. And then on day 88, so on day 90, if they hadn't appealed, mm. that's it, it's game over. Give me a, get me a plane ticket and I'm away. And then on day 88, you know, your, your, your bags is packed. Mm. And then on day 88, the sucker blow comes and they go, right, they've put their appeal into the Supreme Court <laughs> and you just it feels like someone's just ran up to you and kicked you between the legs you feel violently sick you've just been that close to it over to go home to your family and they've just taken it away from you so what happened next Nick um well, obviously they appealed. We went up to Supreme Court uh, after so many months. You know, I spent from the first time being in India, spent like six months in prison and then nearly a year and a half out of prison, basically as a free man, causing a massive financial burden on my family for staying in India, a place that with a man with no charges should never be. He should be back home with his loved ones. Um, and the British government weren't assisting in any way, shape or form. And it was down to charities, etc., to help me survive. And I thank them from the bottom of my heart. Um, obviously, we went up to Supreme Court, not us personally, but our legal team. And we've got the prosecution saying one thing. We, 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 we became a split faction. Um, so you've got the Estonians and Ukrainians getting their legal team and the, us British having our legal team. And in India, it's all about castes. So even though that you may be more qualified 
in a certain role than that person. If your family background is less than his, he is better than you. So their lawyer kind of stood up in court ahead of our lawyer and the judge asked one question and if he just answered and said what he had to say, it would have been over. But he, the judge goes, so why was the vessel there? All he had to turn around and say, the vessel, the vessel was there for fuel and provisions. Nothing more. And it would have been over. Because the prosecution were like, well, they're up to no good. We're saying we're there for fuel and provisions. There's all the paperwork. There's all the evidence. They're saying it as well. There's two against one. However, he turned around and went, I don't know why the ship was there. I'm just here to get these guys home because they were just passengers on the vessel. And where and our legal team's just gone, oh, no, what you've done. So you've basically left the judge with three different uh, answers. There's only one way to get round it. Let's have a trial. And we said to the British government on week one, day one, when they came to visit us in the prison, if this ever goes to trial, it'll be in the lion's den and we will go to prison. Obviously, that's us thinking at week one, day one of the four-year nightmare. So let's fast forward to in a bit, yeah. That's reality. Yeah. And that's what happens. It goes to trial. And a trial to make it look that we're going home. And then they just get their law and just boom how can you abuse your own law is beyond me everyone on that prosecution team in the uk court of law would have been done for perjury it was absolutely revolting i didn't go to many of the uh, attendances unless the judge required me because i when I, we were in the trial and I was listening to our legal team doing the translation on the collector of evidence and he turned around on the stand while getting cross-examined by our, our lawyers and he turned around and said, well, if I'd seen the ballistics expert report, I wouldn't have put the charges on the men. So, yeah, there we go. Can you pause it? Someone's just knocking at my door. All right. Sorry about this. So yeah, back after that short break, and and essentially, Nick, you know, just tell us how you know how it all came. You know, that your name was eventually cleared. Um. So basically, we we got convicted after our trial. Uh, we spent a, a year doing our appeal process to the five year conviction that we got for weapons offences. Um, we had the best legal team money could buy and it was paid for by people's generous donations because we had no pay. We couldn't afford what one lawyer. So down to the amazing people of the UK and other areas around the, other countries around the world for donating to our GoFund page to basically pay for our legal team made the difference um, because we would be still languishing in prison today. Um, but we got went through our appeal process and the judge was very reluctant on making a decision, basically breaching 
their own law, which is quite disgusting yet again. So the captain of our vessel uh, got seriously ill with bone cancer and basically he looked like a bag of bones walking around covered in skin. He wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't in a, health, a healthy looking state. So our legal team put a, a case, like a red heron, so to speak, in the courts to try and get him out of prison to go to a private hospital to die, basically, for his family to come from the Ukraine to see him dying so he didn't die in a prison. So that went through the lower court, passed to the high court. We're still in the high court waiting on a, a judgment uh, on our appeal. And it went up to Supreme Court. And the grandest judge of all of India, Mr. Chief Justice himself, when hearing the captain's plea to go from prison to a, a, a private hospital to die, basically didn't even entertain that. He just turned around and obviously went, obviously I can't quote him, but uh, he basically said, why are you still in my country? Well, our legal team jumped at the chance of this and went, well, Your Honour, we're still waiting on the appeal process one year on uh, down at the High Court. What are you going to do about that? And he, and he just went, you know what? I want a decision within two weeks. So he's ordered the High Court to... Right, it's on like Donkey Kong within two weeks. We only had to wait one week. And we got the date, 27th of November, 2017, judgment day, a Monday. I remember hearing on the radio on the Sunday evening, they were playing rock ballads. The final countdown song came on. This might sound cheesy to a lot of people, but it came on that radio and I stood up in that cell and I said to the guys, tomorrow it's over. We are going home. And you can understand people being apprehensive. Um, I wish I wasn't so positive because I feel like I was being selfish on myself and it kind of later down the line kind of didn't help but. I'm focusing more on myself now. But yeah, when no one slept that night, the next day, everyone was just, some, some people were walking around like headless chickens. People were really nervous. I just went, you know what, what's the point? Just, I'm just going to crack on with what I'm doing. Book reading, dot to dot, replying to letters to, sent to my family. Um. And I we built our own little Flintstone gym, so I was busy training. And then, uh, obviously, the guys had been summoned down to the uh, superintendent's office to speak to the lawyer. And oh, surprise, surprise, out of like 40-odd cases, we were the last to be heard. <laughs> and then I was busy training, and one of the guys uh, came to the barred window and shouted and you can you know when someone's got that, that so a mixed emotions you don't know if that they're about to burst out laughing or cry it was it's a mixture of the both and he and he went dunny 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 i went what 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 he went it's over case acquitted and i went see i told you and i thought my heart's about to jump up my chest here i was buzzing and i tried i thought right Let's finish my workout. And I couldn't. My mind was going 100 million miles an hour. All I could think of is what it's going to be like on UK soil. 
of my family here in the news and you can only you only need to google to see the video of when my family get the good news um and then obviously no one slept that evening and then the next day obviously i was training again walking around the compound same guy being summoned to the superintendent's office coming back he's coming back into the compound i went what's the crack he went get your shit together the embassy's coming at 11 o'clock and i mean it felt like someone had kneecapped us in a good way my legs just went away from us i'm now being told in basically less than 24 hours the case is over i'm now leaving prison that's too much positivity that one man after four years can handle. And I felt like just breaking down and saying, is this real? Is this real? Is this really happening? And I always said, I'll never know and feel it's over till I land in Newcastle airport. I always had that little slight bit of paranoia about us that it's not over till I'm touched down Newcastle airport. and being released out of prison, the embassy coming to get work, going to the embassy, ringing my sister. Well, she was on the, her, on her way to India. She was on her way to Newcastle Airport to fly out to India to see us, to bring us home. Um, but obviously she couldn't let me bring us home because she had to go a day early um, because obviously to set, get my family set up for the uh, airport. Um, but even my sister didn't wasn't aware of what was going to be like at the airport. She just thought it was going to be like, say, one or two local media and a few family. But it even surprised her at what was wait, waiting at Newcastle Airport for myself. Um, and then obviously going through the, the visa department, going through getting all your paperwork. That was a bit of a rigmarole. It was the, the final throw of the dice for them to muck about and delay things. and. Um, we got there in the end. I got me my ticket going to the Chennai airport, getting on that plane, and then going to Dubai and having to stay in Dubai for six hours. I hadn't slept for nearly a week, I was running on fumes. I was thinking, please do not fall asleep and miss this flight. Please do not fall asleep. Anyone who's been to Dubai, you can get an internet signal. My phone couldn't. It was like someone had told their internet providers, do not let Nick Dunn connect. He cannot find out what is going on. And I literally was sat there twiddling my thumbs for six hours drinking coffee in Dubai Airport. I was to take away, to take away. I couldn't communicate with no one. I couldn't. I had no SIM card. I had no. I couldn't get connected to Wi-Fi. I was literally in airport by myself. And then finally getting to board that plane. Um, there was a few people on that plane to Newcastle from Dubai who knew and recognised us. But you know, when you know, when you're looking around and your eyes connect, they, they would give a little thumbs up or, or something like that. But then no one approached me because they knew what it signified. Um, 
I thank Emirates on how they dealt with it. I was uh, giving me own little trolley dolly, so if I had any problems, she literally had to come to my needs. And I really thank Emirates on making my flight the most enjoyable flight I've ever had in my entire life. It's an amazing story, and um, you've turned that into a book, um, a fantastic book. Uh, the title is Surviving Hell. I uh, couldn't think of a better title. No crime, no justice, no surrender. Um, forward by Damien Lewis, who calls it a truly remarkable book. Um, it obviously covers your time, you know, living living a nightmare um, as one of the wrongly convicted uh, Chennai Six. And, um, you know, that book's available on, on Amazon. Um, definitely worth a read. Definitely worth spending uh, a few quid, folks, and, and getting that. I will stick a link up to, to the Amazon version. Just tell us, you know, just how, how the book came about and did you find the, the writing process, you know, therapeutic and getting your story down? Um, I was always receiving little, not, not little hints and stuff like that from people who were writing to us in prison saying, Nick, have you ever thought about writing your memoirs down? You do know when this is finally over, people would want to know your story. And I, I just kind of, didn't brush it to one side or anything like that. I just kind of thought, well, where do I begin? It's four years of an absolute madness of events. How can I put that into context? I, I can't do this alone. And obviously, when coming, being back in the UK, people would recognise us, stop us, say, welcome home and this and the other. And quite a lot of people always went, Nick, I ever thought about writing a book? This would be a great read. And the more and more people kept on saying that, I thought, you know what? I've got nothing to lose here. I came home with nothing. I'm owed six-figure sum in wages alone. I've received no compensation. I've gone through a negative part of my life. Let's try and do something positive. What have I got to lose? Nothing. What have I got to gain? Who knows? Everything, hopefully. Time will tell. But it's not easy. Anyone who says getting a book published is easy, it's not. It's definitely not. Writing a book, anyone can write a book, I suppose. But it's getting it in the chapters, getting it the, the right way of wording things keeping the, the reader fixated in your book, your survival. And the guy who helped me do that, I think he's just nailed it on, on the head. Uh, he's basically got the, the readers gripped. And that's what a lot of people are now telling me, Nick, I'm picking your book up and I can't put it down. And it's a proud moment, a real proud moment for me. And it, it was very difficult going through all of the upsetting stuff again, but it was really enjoyable going through it because it was like a bit of closure. It was shutting one door of a bit of negativity and creating new potential opportunities, positivity. I've, I've came and get to know some fantastic people which I would never have met if I didn't go through four years of hell. So in, any, in every negative, there's always a positive. And if you have that mindset, 
you, you can you, you'll achieve wonders I, I think in life it's a great mindset to have and um you know as i say the book book is a great read well worth uh you know getting it on uh, you know getting it on kindle buying it buying a hard copy however you want to do it definitely well worth a read and and i, I would imagine there would be hope that at some point it gets picked up for, for dramatization as well nick because you know it, it's a fascinating story um i have obviously before lockdown i have uh, heard from my agent that there has been people sniffing around in the uh in that way but obviously nothing's concrete and obviously we've gone through the whole uh coronavirus pandemic so things are starting to now ease and who knows what the future uh, may lie like i say quite a few people when they've read me book have said nick I know it's I know it's real. I know it's it's happened, but it doesn't feel real. It feels like something else. Mm-hmm. Has people been in touch with you to make like like a film or anything like that? And I've gone, well, that would be amazing if that was ever to happen. But I'm I'm not going to get too excited about it. And I'm keeping my feet well and firmly on the ground and. Hey, if there's people out there who are interested in doing something like that, please, by all means, get in touch with myself or uh, my agent, uh, Philip Patterson, um, and we can you know, talk about things in a more in-depth uh, conversation. But I'm just enjoying the moment and doing... Uh, these podcasts to help promote my book and and share my experience and obviously I hope I've uh, achieved that and if anything more progressive comes from it then like I say it'll be in a fantastic achievement and a very proud moment and like I say there's always a positivity and a negative and a negativity. Last question Nick have you managed to turn your life around do you feel do you think that you you know you've you've now you know found peace within yourself and you can move on and and live the rest of your life um yes and no it's a that is a good question um there is still times where i really hit a lower point and that's all my military career four years of hell uh, you know going through a, a horrible breakup last year I have me, me moments where I, I feel sick of my life and I'm being honest there and, and I, I dust myself down. I've got a great family. I've got great friends as well. Um, and I hope they can see the, the signs because I may turn around and say I'm fine, but it's those who will say, Nick, you're, you're not fine. You need help. And, I am doing really well. I am more emotional nowadays, which is quite funny being an ex-paratrooper when paratroopers are these steely-eyed killing machine with no emotions and now I'm an absolute total opposite. I am so emotional, it's unbelievable. Um, but yeah, I think my life now, I've, I've, achieved, I've achieved something, I feel happy. I feel like 
I'm, I've gone through a bad part of my life and I'm trying to do something good for the future. And we, we all go through challenges in our life. It's how we deal with them. It's a great place to finish it. And I'm sure once, you know, we get out of these strange times that, uh, you know, you should get yourself on the circuit, get out there with your book. And, um, you know, I think you'd be a great example of kids going into schools and stuff like that. So hopefully we'll be able to help you and put you in touch with, with the right kind of people to be able to help, you know, you and your agent, you know, get on that path. Because I think it's an inspirational story. It's one which uh, I think people will have enjoyed tonight um, or today whenever they've watched it. And, uh, you know, best of luck with the book. As I say, Surviving Hell available on Amazon and uh, you know Nick is available on Facebook so I'm sure you know you won't mind direct approaches he's already said there if anyone's interested in making a film give him a shout but uh, Nick Dunn uh, for now uh, best of luck mate and thanks very much for your time no problem thank you so much